Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Today we're going to talk about 1986, which was the year... Actually, Platoon won Best Picture, but really, I think of it as the year Blue Velvet was released to the public, because to me, that was the most important film um, released in 1986. Yeah, that's interesting, the way we were doing these years and looking back. When I, when I, I don't always think, I don't think of a film history in terms of Oscars. When I look back on, on the 80s or the 70s, I don't think about it in terms of Oscars, unless that's the specific subject that we're talking about. And so it's interesting to see the movies that I that I'm most fond of in relation to the, what really did end up winning the awards that year. Right. Well, a couple of things about that year. Um, Platoon was kind of a late breaker. It it sort of gained momentum as the year went on, and um, the the real you know big critical hit that year was um, Hannah and Her Sisters, and it won a lot of the early critics' awards. And people were saying that. You know, it was Woody Allen's finest film in years, which we, of course, know now is true. It really is. It really does stand out. And um, the other thing about that year was that Aliens, um, it's another movie that's really stood the test of time. That was Sigourney Weaver. She did not win because Marley Matlin won Best Actress. Um, And Blue Velvet was making a last-minute rally, which is why David Lynch ended up with his first Best Director nomination, um, it actually won the National Society of Film Critics for Picture and Director, and he also won the Los Angeles Film Critics for Best Director for Blue Velvet. Which is a great thing. I mean, I look at the the Best Picture winners, and I see that there's that Blue Velvet wasn't even nominated, and it's better than all but one of the films that were nominated. But at the same time, you have to hand it to the Academy for nominating him for director. That's fantastic. I mean, it's not the kind of movie that's going to get nominated and win because it's a weird movie. But the fact that they were able to overlook its darkness and acknowledge Lynch's brilliance when he hadn't... You know, he'd done Elephant Man, which obviously was a big deal uh, at the time, but I don't think anybody was really prepared for this. And uh, that that people responded to it the way that they did is pretty outstanding. Didn't that happen to him twice? It happened again with Mulholland Drive, right? Um, He was nominated for Mulholland Drive, and it wasn't nominated for Best Picture either. Right. Um, It's a miracle that they nominated it. And and the story goes, according to Inside Oscar, that, uh, you know, of course, as we know about the Academy, they they walked out during the early screenings of it. Famously, a lot of people walked out, you know, that Dennis Hopper scene. Um, But after it started winning all these awards, then they had to reevaluate it and watch it again. So I think that's when the directors were really... I don't know how you watch Blue Velvet and not have your mind blown. I mean, these are guys who came of age in the 70s, and they're not going to appreciate Blue Velvet, you know? Mm-hmm. That's mind-blowing. But, it, yeah, it's great that it did get a director nomination. Um, well, let's remember, too, that it's the director's branch who nominate the director of course and so they are going to, to appreciate a, a director's film like that more than the the academy overall will more than the academy at large will will appreciate it the directors will understand what's involved in making a movie like that and the difficulty in even getting it made in the first place yeah Perhaps and there was more than- there was some controversy because Rhonda Haynes was not nominated for Children of a Lesser God and then, of course, charges of sexism. I mean, you know, they could have tossed Roland Joffe or James Ivory and put her in there, I suppose. But I don't. you can't get rid of Oliver Stone and you can't get rid of Woody Allen and you can't get rid of David Lynch. So mm-hmm. I don't know how she gets in there. Um, a Room with a View and 
um, Platoon and Hannah and Her Sisters were all films that were f- independently funded. So they were calling this kind of the precursor to the independent um, uh, Oscars, which I think happens in the n- mid-90s. But, but, but you're starting to see a, a move away from mainstream Hollywood and toward more independent financing. Uh, he couldn't get, Merchant Ivory couldn't get uh, a room with a view funded. Nobody thought that Americans would be interested in a story about English people, but it made a shitload of money, and that's how mm. it ended up with all these Oscar nominations. I didn't know that about Platoon until I read this in just the past couple of days, that the same situation. Uh, Oliver Stone couldn't get any studio to back it, so we had to turn to the U.K. Hemsdale per, per, uh, financed it, and, and that makes me like the movie so much more, knowing what he had to overcome in order to get it made, and knowing that no studio wanted to have anything to do with it, and then it ends up sweeping the Oscars. Yeah. That makes me more fond of it. I've always, I like it anyway. I, think, I've, it, it, I went through a period where I was I, I sort of kind of looked down on it. I thought it was a little bit too stagey. But the more I look back on it, the more important that I think it is, especially in comparison to some of the other movies that were coming out around the same time that were so gung-ho about the military. For instance, Top Gun. Top Gun was the number one movie of the year in 1986. And Platoon is like the polar opposite of Top Gun. It's the polar opposite, though, but as, watching it again, I was wondering how many how many kids who were roughly my age when that movie came out, I was, I think, 17 when it came out, and you know, a little bit older, who, even though it portrays war as this horrible thing, there's still an undeniable attraction to it because of the camaraderie between the men, and just there's just a lot of things that... And I remember, um, like, the lingo that they used, and it really just seeped into the public consciousness in a way that movies don't always do. And it would just kind of... Um, I see it, what you mean. The, the movie was never intended to be a recruitment vehicle, but I, I can think of a few people who joined up not long thereafter who maybe were influenced by that mindset a little bit. Possibly, because it does show, like you said, it shows that it's great to be a soldier, but what it does show, too, is that it's, it's bad, it sucks to be a soldier and to have to go to war. And that's what Top Gun manages to avoid. It shows the fun of being a soldier, but nobody really has to really get down and, and dirty in, in a wartime situation. And the, and the American military completely cooperated with the making of Top Gun in providing the planes and the ships and everything. You know, they, they knew it was going to be a recruitment tool. And that's probably part of the reason why some of the studios didn't want to be involved with Platoon is because um, a lot of people prob- probably still weren't ready to totally admit that Vietnam had been such a disaster. Mm-hmm. And... and that's my impression anyway, is that um, is that it does show... I, I agree with you that it shows the camaraderie, camaraderie and how great it is to, to be in the military and to have those kinds of goals, but to show also at the same time how, those, how, how the reality is so much more corrupt than that. That reality of war, I think, is, is what made me... what softened my opinion on it, looking back at it, because there had been a number of movies about Vietnam up to that point, but I don't think any of them so specifically and clearly dealt with the 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 feeling and the way that combat was the chaos mm-hmm. and the death and the and just the randomness and the horribleness and and platoon really for the first time confronts that up close i mean there was a little bit of that in deer hunter but it was sort of abstracted and almost metaphorical with the russian roulette business but this was boots on the ground muddy getting shot at and all that kind of stuff and i think I've been unkind to the movie over the years because I don't like Oliver Stone's shtick. I don't like the way he, I don't I don't like his bombast or his lack of subtleness or uh, lots of other things. But 
of all the movies that he's made, this one to me is his most important and it's his most personal and it mm-hmm. shows. And I think, um, I, I feel better about it now than I ever did. Definitely his most personal because he spent 18 months in Vietnam. He lived through it. He got a bronze star in Vietnam himself. So this is, these are, this is from his personal experience. And so I do think it's really realistic. I agree with you about what you say about Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now both. Their depiction of war is almost surreal. It is almost so bizarre and surreal that you really can't even you can't even really believe that that's what it was like. But you really do feel that Platoon is grounded in reality. Yeah, and those movies are 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 more about war in general, about the feeling of war, whereas Platoon is very specifically about what was going on on the ground in Vietnam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Oliver Stone, it was also the year that he made Salvador. That came out the same year, and that was another one where he had a really hard time. Uh, getting funding for it um, and you know it was too rough and tumble but to have come out with both of those movies in one year that's pretty incredible it's a pretty amazing one two punch and James Woods got an Oscar nomination for Salvador so it's not like it was overlooked Right. and, and Oliver Stone was nominated uh, for um, original screenplay for both those for Platoon and Salvador he wow. was, he was, a, he was uh, competing against himself for best screenplay that year oh that's incredible I didn't know that wow yeah. Sal- Salvador's weird to watch now I remember at the time it was it didn't it did well critically but it, it was pretty much ignored by audiences but I remember we were all so anybody who was on the left at all was also focused on what was going on in Central America, whether it was El Salvador or Nicaragua or whatever, and just the sense that we were meddling in things that we ought not be meddling in. Um, but now that the Cold War is over and post nine eleven, none of that really, none of that really seems important anymore. And I was watching it, and it, and it didn't have quite the same impact as it did back then. You know, it just felt like. It, it felt almost like a little tiny blip in history compared to everything else that's been going on since. Um, as far as historical importance, at the time yeah. it was it was eye opening and one of the few movies that that sort of confronted that situation in the moment. Mm-hmm. I see that. Too. I, I agree that as far as being historically significant, um, platoon blows Salvador away. But I really, I think. I, for the stylus of filmmaking in Salvador. I really, I think I like Salvador better. I think Salvador is a better movie than the platoon for me. I would agree. I think I, I appreciated watching it more. I don't know that it's, like I said, it's not as important of a movie, but I, that's, when I say platoon is important, I'm giving it a little extra credit for a movie that I don't really care for, whereas Salvador is a movie I actually like on its, yeah, own, right. on its yeah. own. I um, I need to rewatch pl- platoon. I, I it, I learned a pretty important lesson just thinking about it now in that I was 21 in 1986, and, I, you know, I remember that year because I went to see Hannah and her sisters probably ten times in the movie theater, something like that. I would, I was um, in, like, a kind of a weird, depressed state. I remember it very specifically. I would get a pint of white rice from the, the Chinese food, and I would get plum sauce, and I would sit there, and I would eat my white rice with plum sauce watching... Hannah and her sisters and it just cheered me up I crawled into that movie but before we get to Hannah and her sisters I'll just say that at the time I just hated Platoon and my friends and I would ridicule it call it Spittoon say it was a terrible movie and Mm -hmm. you know we knew that it was the moment had come to acknowledge the you know what had happened to the Vietnam vets that came home Mm -hmm. and how sad it was that America really kind of looked upon them as losers and and the war as, as a great loss 
and that the soldiers were the ones that paid the price. And yes, we did see that a little bit of that in coming home, but platoon really brought it out in America, and everybody was talking about it. It was being talked about in political elections. It was really had captured the zeitgeist by the time it, it swept the Oscars, uh, and it was late breaking in that way. And so you couldn't deny the power of that movie on on the culture. And anyway, you cut it. Barnes is a fucking murderer. Right on. Taylor, I remember when you first came in here, telling me how much you admired the bastard. I was wrong. Wrong. You ain't never been right about nothing. Dig this, you assholes, and dig it good. Barnes been shot seven times. And he ain't dead. Does that mean anything to you, huh? Bonds ain't meant to die. The only thing that can kill Bonds is Bonds. Talking about killing? Hmm? Y'all experts? Y'all know about killing? Well, I'd like to hear about it, potheads. You smoke this shit so to escape from reality? Yeah, I don't need this shit. I am reality. the way it ought to be, there's the way it is. Life is full of shit. Life is a crusader. Now, I got no fight with any man that does what he's told. And when he don't, the machine breaks down. And when the machine breaks down, we break down. And I ain't gonna allow that. Many of you. Not one. You all love lies. kick ass yeah well here I am all by my lonesome and ain't nobody gonna know six you boys against me you know, it was a huge box office hit. It made like 160 million dollars. Yeah, it, it did. You know, and and this is interesting. From 1985 to 1990, the ticket prices in America were like three dollars to four, three fifty to four dollars. So it's pretty easy for this period of time that we're in right now to double the box office from the 19 from 1986 and to estimate what it would make today. So a movie that made 130 million dollars in 1986 would be 
uh, $260 million today. To yeah. a movie like Platoon to make that kind of money is incredible. And Platoon's a movie that would win today. It's one of the ones, mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting into the Oscar zone where, you know, we're starting to see the kind of movies that win Oscars now. And this is definitely one of them. If it had come out and made $260 million, it would be a no-brainer that it would win. And it was important, quote-unquote. I mean, it was up against, its only real competition was Hannah and her sisters. Uh, and that wasn't competition it's funny because woody allen was competing against himself he really this is what he said um i'll read you a a bit from inside oscar um in compiling their 1985 10 best list many critics couldn't resist saying that none of the year's movies could equal the woody allen movie due to open in february when the director heard the enthusiastic response he moaned if you make a popular movie you start to think where have i failed i must be doing something that's unchallenging or reinforcing prejudices of the middle class or being simplistic or sentimental orion however was thrilled and for the first time held a national Um, press tour of stars for a Woody Allen film. Woody didn't participate, but co-star Michael Caine did. Um, Woody Allen, like, insisted that all of his his name be taken off all the ads for the Oscars. That's how adamantly opposed to the Oscars he was back then. That's why when people, when when he appeared at the Oscars, when his business was sort of failing after um, he was being sued by Gene Dumaney and his producer... For him to show up at the Oscars was such a big deal. Like, if you didn't live through this period and you remember him being so anti-Oscars, it probably wouldn't surprise you that much. But for people like me and, and these critics who lived through it, it's, it was it was shocking to see that change. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you, you, you mentioned that Hannah and her sisters uh, opened in February, and it stuck. It hung hung tight all year long. Whereas Platoon opened on December third, on December twenty fourth, the day before wow. Christmas. Wow. Yeah. That, and the Oscars were still being held in March, it's worth noting. So the season hadn't been condensed yet, but still, I mean, and back then, if you had a late-breaking movie like that, you could gain enough momentum to win. Nowadays, you can't really open a movie, and you can't have critics seeing it in December and expect to win. There's just not enough time. I think it helped that 1986 was 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 top-heavy with maybe four or five masterpieces, but then there's a really steep drop-off after that. Yeah. I think it's probably a lot easier to predict the, the Oscar winners, Oscar nominees in the 1980s because that happened a lot you had five or six fantastic films and then nothing else except for yeah it's worth noting though the um the best actress race was an incredible example of strong female-led projects that year which was children of a lesser god was great she was great in Mm -hmm. that the morning after with jane fonda one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies uh crimes of the heart all totally cast by women all women peggy sue got written by a woman and um peggy sue got married carried entirely on kathleen turner's shoulders and aliens you know Mm -hmm. and then hannah and her sisters so what a great year for women a room with a view was about a woman a woman you know don't forget new wave hookers just kidding (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, that was a big. My my roommate in college loved them. <laughs> I don't even. I didn't Which even catch one? that reference. That's a that's the title of the movie. Yeah, Mona Lisa. A, uh, X-rated movie that had um, um, what's her name? I can't even think of her name anymore. Like like uh, Beyond the Green Door Lady, whatever her name is. Beyond the no, Green Door. the one who it turned out later was underage when she did most of her movies. Oh um, yeah, uh, blonde hair. Um, Oh my God, she was so big in the '80s because then she went mainstream, right? She, um... I, uh, yeah, she was in a couple of John Waters films, I think. Oh God, what was her name, Craig? Tracy Lords. Tracy yeah, Lords, yeah. thank you. Oh, that's so funny, Tracy Lords. Oh my God. Um, you were you you 
you talked about um, independent films earlier, and I think um, even if you step outside of the Oscar race, I think in general you start to see more than ever before independent movies and independent distributors sort of holding up the mantle of all that is good in movies. And even if they're not showing up at the awards, they're still holding up quality. I mean, you have... um, I remember Jean de Florette and Man mm. of the Spring were both huge that year, and that was those were Orion classics. Um, Blue Velvet, obviously. Jim Jarmusch had Down by Law, which um, foisted Roberto Benigni on the world. And wow. For worse. Um, Salvador, <laughs> obviously, already mentioned. Um, Parting Glances, uh, Mona Lisa... Uh, Manhunter, an early um, Michael yeah. Mann film, which actually was uh, the first Hannibal Lecter movie, yeah. Manhunter. It's a great movie. Um, I love that Eddie movie. Blue. Um, oh, fantastic. A, a Zed and Two Knots, which is um, Peter Greenaway. Um, Henry Portrait of the Serial Killer was a huge a huge movie. That's a great movie. But can I just give a quick shout-out to anybody who might be listening that's very young and doesn't know about Betty Blue? That is a movie to see. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. That movie is, like, just doesn't... That kind of movie does not exist anymore. I mean, you see that kind of sex on Game of Thrones, maybe, but you hardly see it in movies anymore. It's really just not there, you know? Not familiar with it. Yeah, now I want to check it out. I'm not, I don't know anything about it at all. Oh, la, la. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> oh, baby. Wait till the you two big that. ones. Um, I'm sorry. No, no, keep... It's okay. Ginger and Fred was also that year. Fellini three of the big ones that just stick out of my memory because this was a time when I was still sort of discovering movies as art. It sort of picked up a little bit earlier, but I was finally a a snotty high school senior and sort of was dismissing the top guns of the world and and that kind of stuff and sort of going into town into the art house theater to watch the the art movies. But um, Mm. Sid and Nancy... um, Something Wild, the Jonathan, Jonathan Demi pick, and um, a movie called True Stories, which you don't hear about very much anymore, but I had just discovered Talking Heads, the band, in high school, and David Byrne made this movie, True Stories, that was wrapped around their, what, wrapped around a bunch of songs that, that they did, John Goodman was in it, and it was sort of this snotty, anti-Middle America movie that at the time I thought was hilarious, and it was one of my favorite movies, but I don't think it's held up very well, but it mm. just, it's one of those movies that, it's one of the touchstones in my in my life, so I wanted to give it a shout out, and it, and it, so and we're it talking- ties in with the whole independent cinema movement that was yeah, going on. So Another a really significant um, event in, in independent movies was that this was the debut uh, film for Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It. That oh, he made God, for twenty. Great. He made it for $20,000 and it grossed like $8 million. It's a wonderful so really, movie, by the way. Really worth yeah. seeing. Mm-hmm. Yet another... I don't know how things ever got so screwed up. Am I right that Stand By Me was this year also? Yep. And mm-hmm. um, Heartburn? Is it possible that Heartburn was this year and it just yes. got no Oscar attention at all? Yeah, Nicholson and Streep not getting an Oscar. What's up with that? And Nora Ephron not getting and Mike Nichols, like, just totally overlooked completely? That's I think I think it was seen as a disappointment at the time, but I've watched it in the last year or so, and it actually holds up really well. It does. I mean, it's better than, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's better than A Room With A View. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I, have a, I have a fondness for A Room With A View, but I understand. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's okay, A Room with a View. It's a I like I'm so, I like those nerdy English movies. Yeah. I can't, I can't and that was much. one of the best ones. It really was one of the And wasn't it the movie that introduced America to Daniel Day-Lewis? Uh, yeah, he was great in it, too. He played a, yeah. kind of a jerk. 
Um, I, I like the idea of it. I love the idea that it was about her. I mean, that's that's great. And speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis, we talked about it last week, but My Beautiful Laundrette was actually released in the U.S. this year. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had come out in the U.K. the year before, but uh, if you didn't notice him in Room with a View, you definitely noticed him in that. That's right. He had a, he had a one-two punch that year, too. Really, uh, it really made a big splash with both of those movies. Well, also, Nine and a Half Weeks. Um, uh, yeah, another huge cultural moment. Huge cultural <laughs> moment, Nine and a Half Weeks, and uh, Absolute Beginners. Oh, yeah. Julian Temple. Yeah, weird, huh? Ferris Bueller's Day Off, too. I had a huge crush on this girl in my social studies class. And uh, we skipped school to go see Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It was it was the greatest thing ever. We never had sex or anything, but... That's so cute. What a yeah. story. It's better than sex. It, it, memory-wise, it absolutely was, because at that point in my life, the sex would have been terrible anyway. I feel like the Oscars were really kind of... I, I'm not saying their choices were terrible, but they were sort of out of touch with a lot of what was going on. You know, the movies we're all talking about that were kind of setting the world on fire. It's a miracle that they paid any attention to Blue Velvet, considering mm-hmm. right. that, that was really, re- I think, a revolutionary film that year, for sure. It's so hard to deny Platoon, though. If you if you go back and remember what a big deal that yeah. was at the time, it it seems. I mean, it's not my choice for the best movie of that year, but it's a it's a solid choice and an understandable and a reasonable choice. I think they're so funny, the Oscars, because back then a movie like Platoon would have captured the public zeitgeist. Everybody was involved in it. This is what we're seeing from this Best Picture and going backwards every year we've done so far. It was impossible to deny because it was the movie that year for everybody. You ask anyone on the street and that was the movie. Nowadays, it's like they they still are adhering to that, I'm picking this kind of movie. But the public has kind of grown around them. You know, they're like this kind of this ruin, this Roman ruin, Mm -hmm. and this whole city's been built around them, and they're sticking to, I mean, I think of Argo. In no way, shape, or form was Argo the platoon. You know, or King's no. Speech even was not no the way. platoon. For one thing, it's reflected in the box office. Not only did Platoon win Best Picture, but it was a number three box office movie of the year. It, it earned an equivalent uh, $2,012. It earned $260 million. Right, That's but amazing, and now you have you know? a movie like Lincoln, for instance, yeah. or mm-hmm. Social Network or something that really is generating that kind of you know, excitement. And, uh-huh. and they don't choose it. Because yeah. it's not their taste. It's funny. Like, they're still adhering to what was, but the world around them has changed. So the world is no longer agreeing with that, you know? Because they're too often, in the last few years, falling back on the easiest, least controversial, least offensive choice. Right. It's, it's always the, it's, so they come up with these middle of the road pictures that everybody kind of likes, a couple of people are passionate about, but very few people actually hate. And so it, it, but they don't they don't make very good winners. I don't think history will be kind to the last few years with Oscar. And in the early 80s, we were also seeing the fact that we're really seeing the, 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 the disconnect between the Academy's distaste or inability to understand science fiction movies because we look back on E.T. and Close Encounters, Blade Runner, Brazil, 
uh, both the Alien and Aliens, those movies are not only fantastic science fiction films, but they are uh, definitely among the best movies of those of those years when they came out. They're 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 regarded now as the as pinnacles of the '80s yeah. of any genre, and they were completely overlooked by the Academy because they were science fiction. And I think science fiction still had still carried with it kind of a whiff of of campy corniness from the 1960s because when science fiction was a little bit corny. People had people in the academy didn't realize that the science fiction was had grown up, and it had yeah. become darker and meaningful, full of all kinds of really complex themes. People didn't weren't willing to see that yet. I think they are now more and more. I think they're they're, they're able to to recognize that. Yeah, I hope. Well, it's, a, it, it's a shame that that they are. You know, I was talking to somebody the other night, and he was saying, well, he loved Silver Linings Playbook, but he was also saying that, um, you know, he's like, you know, just flat out you know he's like the oscars they're just they're so out of touch you know he's like they don't mm-hmm. they don't have anything to do with what anybody talks about out out there in the world and the independent spirits are more talked about than the oscars now weird isn't it mm-hmm. it is but anyway let's continue on talking about the great hannah and her sisters shall we absolutely is definitely it stands alongside annie hall in manhattan as woody allen's one of his three best films of all time i think for me yeah, Craig. I was going to wait for you to respond before I did. Um, it's been a little over a year since I've seen it, so I don't have a lot of fresh, interesting perspectives on it. But it's <laughs> it's it's uh, there's nothing bad about it. It's spectacular. The the it's one of those perfect combinations of of Woody Allen's writing and directorial style, but also the performances of everybody in the film, who are all work together but they're all different and they're all spectacular and it just it's one of those move one of those rare movies that fires on all cylinders at all times it's the kind of woody allen movie that i like where he's not trying to be funny and he doesn't try to give his his characters a jokey things to say they're amusing and they don't realize they're being funny they don't realize they don't realize that they're that they're that they're making a smile they're just being themselves but he's not trying actively to make to to do comedy it's a it's a really it's a it's drama with with a with amusing situations um, the annoying word that they would put on it some years later would be dramedy which is a word that i totally hate but mm-hmm. it's basically reality where stuff happens and some of it is funny kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and he had said that he wanted to base it on mia farrow because she was so together and she, you know he wanted to to explore her having kind of loony sisters but what you really see in in um Hannah and her sisters is the inclination toward infidelity and the, and the wrestling with that, the dilemma of, you know, finding somebody else sexy other than like the perfect woman who is Hannah and then turning it on Hannah and, you know, and just saying, having Michael Caine confront her about her perfection and, and her kind of defending herself, you know, you know, basically saying, I don't know what, what you want from me or I feel lost. And then him clinging to her because he doesn't really have a choice in life. He clings to her. And you see that same kind of theme um, wrestled with in Husbands and Wives, again, with Mia Farrow. Uh, the same sort of thing. This kind of you know wonderful woman who who is a little bit suffocating in her perfection. Um, also worth noting. And uh, crimes and misdemeanors and interiors are the have the same themes yeah. going on. Right, right, exactly. But when he, it's weird when he casts Mia as Mia. It's always strange because it can get a little uncomfortable knowing how their relationship turned out. One of the great, I think, the best. Two, my two favorite storylines are with uh, Diane Weist and and Woody Allen, and with um, 
and with Michael Caine and Max von Sydow and um, Barbara Hershey, especially Max von Sydow, who's seen is so it's still so memorable. People quote him all the time when he says, "If Jesus came back and saw what was going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up." Oh. It's been ages since I sat in front of the TV, just changing channels to find something. You see, the whole culture, Nazis, deodorant salesmen, wrestlers, beauty contest, the talk show. Can you imagine the level of a mind that watches wrestling? Huh? But the worst are the fundamentalist preachers, third-rate con men, telling the poor suckers that watch them that they speak for Jesus. And to please send in money, 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 money. If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, He'd never stop throwing up. Oh, God, Frederick, could you please lighten up? I'm really not in the mood to hear a review of contemporary society again. You know, you've been very nervous lately. I can't take this anymore. I'm just trying to complete an education I started on you five years ago. I'm not your pupil. I was, but I'm not. When you leave the nest, I just want you to be ready to face the real world. Please. Frederick, we're going to have to make some changes. Like what? Oh, you know what? I'm suffocating. Oh, are we going to have this conversation again? Yes, we're going to have this conversation again. I, I have to leave. I have to move out. Why? Because I have to. So what are you going to use for money? I don't know. I thought maybe I'd move in with my parents for a while. Oh. I always told you you would leave me. Say, does it have to be now? Well, maybe it'll only be temporary, but I, I have to try. Oh, Lee, you are my whole world. God, have you been kissed tonight? No. Oh, yes, you have. You've been with Stop someone. Stop accusing me. I'm too smartly. You can't fool me. You're turning all red. Leave me alone. Oh, Christ, what's wrong with you? I'm sorry. Oh, couldn't you say something? You have to slither around behind my back. saying it now. So you met somebody else? Yeah. But you, you knew that was going to happen sooner or later. I can't live like this. Who is it? What's the difference? It's just somebody I met. But who? Where did you meet him? It doesn't make a difference. I have to move out. You are, you are my only connection to the world. Oh, God, that's too much responsibility for me. It's not fair. I want a less complicated life, Frederick. I want a husband, maybe even a child, before it's too late. Jesus. Jesus. Oh, God, I don't even know what I want. What do you get out of me, anyway? I mean, it's not sexual anymore. It's certainly not intellectual. I mean, you're so superior to me in every Please way. Please don't patronize me! God, I should have married you years ago when you wanted to. I should have agreed. Oh, God, don't you know it never would have worked? I told you one day you would leave me for a younger man. I... But the heaviness of that scene between them where he confronts her and um, that's that's dark, you know, that's really, mm-hmm. I think, kind of what he's getting at here with his, his latest movie, Blue Jasmine. That's like it's really, really dark, darker than the other two storylines. I've heard people, I think you've said it, and I've heard other critics say that, that Blue Jasmine harks back to Crimes and Misdemeanors and, and Hannah and Her Sisters. It's the same type of movie and also the same level of depth. See, I don't think it is at all because both 
many of Woody Allen's films and Hannah and her sisters and crimes to misdemeanor and misdemeanors included up to the point where the Sun Yi thing happened. Mm-hmm. He's always has kind of a melancholy, bittersweet, uplifting way things turn out. You know, he's not much for tragedy before you get to that. But then after that, it's kind of one tragedy after another. But, um, yeah. but there's a sweetness to Hannah and her sisters, uh, you know, a romanticized vision of love and romance and sex. You know, there's so much in there. It just makes your heart swell watching that movie. The, the, most, the most affectionate representations of New Yorkers that have ever been put on screen, I think Woody Allen has, has done with those movies from the mid-80s. Yeah, he's the guy that made me want to live in New York. I mean, his mm. vision of New York, it really, Woody Allen's view of it. I liked in Blue Jasmine, he, he kind of pierces that a little bit because he is Mr. Upper East Side. You know, he is dinner mm. at Elaine's and, and hanging out and hobnobbing with that set of people. And this movie is about a woman coming down from that and being ejected from that world and the kind of character of the people involved in that world. He really just skewers them. And it's, it's interesting to see that because he was so much a part of it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all, a lot of his movies are about that kind of class of people. We have seen a lot of stuff today. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe we should start Thanks. thinking about going home, huh? Oh, geez, okay. yeah. Who gets dropped first? Oh, gee, I don't know. Um, well, I live downtown. Yeah, I, we both live downtown. Oh. It depends well, on what way you want to you know go. What? I know. Oh, if, well, if we took the if we took Fifth, then then, then we'd get to your house we first, could, yeah. Right. We could do that. Yeah, but Fifth is so jammed, isn't it? I mean, well, some jammed time, if we went. Some, this, um, you live in Chelsea, don't you? Yeah. Well, I, I guess if you live in Chelsea, that's probably first. Oh, okay. okay. And then April. Right. Naturally, I get taken home first. Well, obviously, he prefers April. Of course, I was so tongue-tied all night. I can't believe I said that about the Guggenheim. My stupid little roller skating joke. I should never tell jokes. Mom can tell him, and Hannah, but I kill him. Where did April come up with that stuff about Adolf Luz in terms like organic form? Well, naturally, she went to Brandeis. But I don't think she knows what she's talking about. Could you believe the way she was calling him David? Yes, David. I feel that way too, David. What a marvelous space, David. I hate April. She's pushy. Now they'll dump me and she'll invite him up. I blew it. And I really like him a lot. Oh, screw it. I'm, I'm not going to get all upset. I've got reading to do tonight. You know, maybe I'll get into bed early. I'll turn on a movie and take an extra second off. Every place I've ever lived, I tried to make it look like the sets from Hannah and her sisters and the crimes and misdemeanors. I want to try to make where I'm living, no matter where it is in the world, to look like the, the sets that he that he created in, in those movies. In fact, I think yeah, it uh, Hannah and her sisters. One of the four Oscars that had, one of the Oscars that it was nominated for was Best Art Direction, yeah. Set Direction. Yeah, they, so, because those apartments are fantastic. And that's Mia Farrow's real apartment, you know. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Maybe redressed a little bit. But I didn't know. I did not know that. And Which he has a quote yeah. says that he, he was over there every day, so it just made sense to film it there. And, you know, little Sunni Previn is in the, as a little kid wow. in one of those Brilliant. scenes. Yeah. Um, but 
the Oscars were split up that year between those three movies, between Platoon, um, A Room with a View, and Hannah and Her Sisters. Those were their three favorites. But they went finally with Mr. Paul Newman, who finally won his Oscar after seven nominations. He didn't. He, he had hemmed and hawed about whether or not he was going to show up because you know everybody thought he was going to win. Remember, we went through it with the with the verdict. Um, and the year before, he won finally a, a, an honorary Oscar. They finally thought, well, we, it looks like we're never going to be able to get it together to give him an actual yeah. Oscar. So we'll give him an honorary Oscar. And, and he, then the yeah. following year, he actually won one. He didn't want to show up because he didn't want to be that guy who lost. Everybody thought Bob Hoskins was going to get it for Mona Lisa. And Paul Newman had no idea, obviously, and and then he won, and he wasn't there. Oh, isn't that a bummer? But um, but yeah, he finally won. Stiff competition, but it's a worthy it's a worthy win. It's not like it was a career achievement award at all. I think he's fantastic in that movie. Yeah, I can't think of anybody who, except for maybe James Woods. Woods was great. Hoskins is great. Hurt is always great, but. You know, I don't think they were necessarily any better than than Newman was. So when you do factor in the career part of it, on top of that, it's just it, it, it would have been almost obscene if he didn't win. Yeah, it was especially that was considering a that he was nominated. Also, one of his first nominations was for The Hustler. In the, right. in the '60s, right, and that's one of the great things that movies, the movie sequels, can do when they're not when they're not franchise type sequels. When a movie picks up with characters ten or. 12 or 15 years later in a, a different part, different time of their life, the same actor playing the same character, that's something you never see in any other art form. And I think that's it, it's so satisfying to see that, like with uh, Before Midnight, Before Sunrise, and you know those movies too, the same way. When you can follow actors and characters aging over the decades, it's an amazing thing yeah. to see on screen. But think and of they're, how, how... they're not about just capitalizing on the movie that came before. They're mm-hmm. about taking a new situation, similar, same characters, different circumstances, and going off in a new direction, and Aliens did that too. Aliens, right. Aliens had a, it was a, there was a seven year uh, gap between Alien and and the sequel, and what Ripley went through in that period of time. I mean, she was in a she was in deep sleep for fifty seven years. She wakes <laughs> up and everybody she knows is dead. Even her own daughter has passed away. Yeah. You know? um, uh, imagine how fucked up it would be though to be Paul Newman and or anybody like that or Eddie Murphy when he was up for Dreamgirls or Steven Spielberg when he was up for you know Lincoln and to just have so many people predicting you and so many people thinking you're going to win this is Paul Newman for the verdict I'm thinking mm-hmm. and then to just have to sit there and not win and then to have to like walk out after you know and, and talk to people and see all the look of like condolences and backpat I mean just be awful oh, I know, time after time that. after time it happens to you that you would find Finally, I would think be just demoralized and just be depressed about the idea of showing up. I think that they did have a, like a private ceremony with friends when he was when he accepted the Oscar in a small group of friends at a dinner party at someone's house. And someone asked him, I think Loretta, yeah, I have it here. Uh, Loretta Young asked him, was it too little, too late? And he nodded his head and he said, it's like chasing a beautiful woman for 80 years. Finally, she relents and you say, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. Oh no! Oh man, I love terrible. him. Yeah, I guess he must have kind of felt that way. I, I really think that it took a lot out of him when he didn't win for 
you know, for the verdict. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it'd be so much easier going in as the underdog, and nobody's expecting you to win because then you, you're just there to have fun, you're, and there's no nobody's watching you to see how you react, and and there's no expectations. But when you go in, and the assumption is that it's yours, and then it's not. It's like, oh, come on. Yeah, and the thing about it is that in reading through this book, this Inside Oscar book, and and reading what people like, for instance, Paul Newman talking about winning maybe for the color, the color of money, and. Um, the, what they have to go through to win, I know, and we know that because we talk about and blog about the Oscars, we know what a game it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but for them, it's like their peers. It's the people that they have Christmas parties with every year. It's their friends. It's people they've worked with. And then to have them reject you like that, it must feel mm-hmm. so weird to have, mm-hmm. like, your friends. It would be like if, you know, all of our blogger, you know, people got together and every year and... Like, let's say David Poland was up for best blogger and, you know, he hadn't won and he hadn't won and he hadn't won. And people kept saying, oh, you're going to win this year. And he has to go and confront everybody he knows and show up at this thing and then lose. I I mean, it would just feel so strange, not just the fact that you're losing in front of millions of people and in your career, but to have your friends, people you know Mm -hmm. that you've worked with for decades. turn And to lose sometimes to just a flash in the pan who's never going to, to, the following year or then years after that, is never going to do anything else again. And you see that, look back on the people who took your honor that year when you should have had it and it went to somebody else just because they were the flavor of the month. They were trendy that year. Right. So uh, every- uh, yeah, I know what you're saying, but it's, it's, it's you're being not only it's not it's not as if it's not like a presidential election where you a bunch of anonymous people voting yay or nay. It's your it's your peers. It's, that's why it means so much to them, I guess. Yeah. Um, here's a funny thing about Best Actress. If we want to move on to that category, uh, mm-hmm. it said there was no consensus among the critics among the critics circles on Best Actress that year. Kathleen Turner and Sissy Spacek each earned citations, but neither seemed to have a lock on the Oscar Derby. Spacek clearly outperformed her Crimes of the Heart co-stars in the publicity game. Diane Keaton didn't participate in De Laurentiis' promotional tour at all, and Jessica Lange sabotaged her chances with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association by arriving for a press conference and then refusing to budge from her limo when she heard she was expected to pose for individual photos with every member of the association. <laughs> Spacek happily complied and smiled along with the journalist. She was the only one from the cast nominated by the group for its Golden Globe Award, which she ultimately won. Part, partly, I think working in, in, in favor of Mary Madeline that year, she was she was dating uh, William Hurt, right? And so, since he had won Best Actor the year before, it would be he who presented her with her Oscar if she won. And people had to be aware of that that if she won, that she would he would be she would be getting the Oscar from from her boyfriend on stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that she was an easy call. Like, I would have been mm-hmm. easy to predict. They're not going to not give it. To- Marley Matlin. She does those, the whole those, movie. Those, those roles are Oscar bait anyway. Oh a my role God. where you where you go through the whole movie where you don't speak. That's like it's like a it's like a circus act or something almost. Oh, and it it, <laughs> it plays right into their you know the girl you want to fuck because she was like beautiful young hot sexy woman you know and yes, she can't she talk deaf, and she can't <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the perfect woman. <laughs> no one's ever gonna speak for you again. Come on. How are you going to manage? Everyone's always told me who I am. And I let them. She wants. She thinks. And most of the time they were wrong. They had no idea what I said. Wanted. Thought. And now they will. Well, that's all right. You know, I'll buy that. 
I won't. How could I? Because I love you. Love has nothing to do with it? That's wonderful. Then what the hell have we been doing? Watch your hands. It's hard to avoid them. This sign. To connect. Simple. But it means so much more when I do this. Now it means to be joined in a relationship separate but one. That's what I want. But you think for me, think for Sarah, as though there were no I. She will be with me. Quit her job. Learn how to play poker. Leave Oren's party. Learn how to speak. That's all you, not me. Until you let me be an I the way you are, you can never come inside my silence and know. And I won't let myself know you. Until that time, we can't be like this. But, you know, she's really sexy, and, and yeah. look who she's up against. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but Jane Fonda, Sissy's basic, Kathleen Turner, Sigourney Weaver. You know, I mean, you know what they did to her that year, though? They have nominees present different awards throughout the evening. They had Marley Mat- Matlin present the award for Best Sound. I mean, how crude and stupid and ridiculously unsubtle is that? So typical of the Academy to do something that's grotesque like that. <laughs> have, have the deaf girl give the award for best sound. It's like having Stevie Wonder show up and give the award for best cinematography. Oh, Stevie. <laughs> that's probably how they won that award that year. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, it's just depressing because... The Academy, they're so lame that they couldn't even give Dennis Hopper a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Blue Velvet, though he did get one for Hoosiers. But mm. how do you not reward Dennis Hopper for, like, one of the greatest performances of all time? I mean, I know they it was... They kind of were nominating him with the Hoosiers one, but they could sleep better at night with Hoosiers because it didn't give them nightmares. <laughs> there were probably a lot of people in the Academy who probably heard that they shouldn't even try to watch Blue Velvet, that it would be too much for them. I'm sure it was a movie that a lot of them skipped. They walked they, out would of have it, too, yeah. Yeah, they walked out of it, or it was too intense for them, or they were just um, weirded out by it. Who is this fuck? Well, what's your name, neighbor? Jeffrey. He's a good kid, Frank. Shut the fuck up. Let's go. Get your fucking robe. Raymond? Come on, we're gonna go for a joyride. What kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Pabst Blue Ribbon! Where's the glasses? That beer's gonna get warm. One thing I can't fucking stand is warm beer makes me fucking puke. My darling, where's the glass? You want me to pour it? No, I want you to fuck it. Shit, yes, pour the fucking beer. Love beer. Here's the beer. Here's the beer. <laughs> 
Here's to Ben. Here's to Ben. Be polite. Here's to Ben. All right. Let's hit the fucking road. We're giving our neighbor a joyride. Let's get on with it. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Taking your neighbor out to fucking country. <laughs> hey, what is this fuck got to do with anything? Fuck! What are you looking at? Nothing. Don't you look at me, fuck! What's the matter? Just a little red, that's all. Oh, kid, let me feel. Oh, oh come here. Mm. Hey, leave her alone. <laughs> oh, damn. Next! Get him out of the car, fuck! Get him out of the car, Raven! Shut up! Shut up! How about how Michael Caine didn't show up to collect his award because he was busy filming Jaws the Revenge? I know, right? That's oh, so no. Speaking of bad sequels. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. He's Forgot so him. funny, Michael Caine. He has a lot of really funny quotes that I can't dig up, but, you know, basically he would just say, you know, I'm, I'm really ugly. I can't believe I ever got any work in Hollywood. <laughs> That's well, what he awesome. thinks. Um, I know, he's great. He did say after he won the Supporting Actor Award, he said, well, it's only a supporting award. I'm still after the big one. Right. You know, so even though he won that year, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't happy with that. But he's he only won that. two supporting, I think, hasn't he? In his whole career? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure offhand. Let me check real quick. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know yes. if he won two. Yes, or you're right. Uh-huh. Yeah, for, uh, for for the Cider House Rules oh, and Hannah and her sisters. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> so Woody Allen wins screenplay for Hannah and her sisters, beating out Oliver Stone for having written two that year. Platoon and Salvador. What about Crocodile Dundee in the original screenplay? <laughs> Now, what happened? Uh, what was that all about? How did that even happen? That was another one of those huge cultural moments. It was like suddenly America woke up to the fact that Australia existed. <laughs> that movie came out, and everybody was throwing shrimps on the Barbie, and it was this and that and that. And Paul Hogan was everywhere. That was like one of those weird movie sensations that just mm. kind of out out 
outperforms its its goodness, and so I think it just kind of seeped into the Oscars because of that. <laughs> and it was the number two movie of the year. Top Gun earned 176 yeah. million dollars, and Crocodile Dundee under uh, earned 174 million dollars. So they were Honestly, like between the two. I, w- I would rather watch uh, Crocodile Dundee again ten times before ever watching Top Gun again. Uh, yeah, and Paul Hogan was the screenwriter on Crocodile Dundee, so that had to have something to do with it. They love it when the stars are the screenwriters. Um, mm. And then the adapted screenplay, um, A Room with a View, one of the few female screenwriters to ever win, and she won. And um, also nominated that year was Beth Henley for Crimes of the Heart, based on mm. her play. Stand By Me, is that its only nomination, screenplay? That was a really good movie. It deserved better, I think, than just one. Again, it's one of those movies. If you if you have a movie that's about teenagers or kids, you can just count them being overlooked. You know, they're, they're, the academy don't think look at those movies as being too immature somehow or beneath them. They don't like to award movies that star kids. I think right. if there was a movie that was going to cross over, that would have been it because it mm-hmm. it, it um, because it really appealed to adult nostalgia more than anything. It didn't more than it pandered to little kids. But right. it, even that, it still couldn't do it. Top Gun. <laughs> oh, God. That's, you know, that movie was huge at the time. I hated it then. I hate it now. I hate everybody involved with it. <laughs> and it's the, one of those movies that people, it's, it's like one of people's favorite guilty pleasures, and I've never understood it. To mm-hmm. me, it's representative of the slightly younger generation than my generation, because I never really connected with the Top Gun, but so many people do. And it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, same thing. Like, um, your generation, Craig, I think is is more... Um, Ferris Bueller friendly than I am. I mean, I, I really have a soft spot for John Hughes, but that of the, all of his movies, it's not my favorite one. But I, and I think that it doesn't really hold up. But at the time, there was probably nothing like it. You know. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. Looking back at it, 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 it doesn't hold up well at all. Breakfast Club, as corny as it is, still holds up really well. But Ferris Bueller Pretty in Pink hold really up. does. Oh, I think it does. I still enjoy Ferris Bueller. There's a moment in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where they go to the Art Institute of Chicago and they're standing in front of that Surratt painting. The uh, afternoon in the Grand Jat, whatever it is, that huge wall size painting of the pointillism, you know, style, and 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 the music about that, and the close and the close-ups of their faces, and then it goes closer and closer onto the painting, so that you see it's made up of tiny dots. That that gets me every time. That moment in that movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the one that it's one. So there's some movies, I guess, that that we see when we're kids that have a special fondness for them that go beyond their actual value or their actual quality. That that that. that so we can't so we can't hear any criticism of them. Right. Well, and I had the exact opposite reaction. I I adored it when I was that age, mm. but it has lost some of its luster as I've gotten older. But it's still it's it's not. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it's not the movie I think about when I think about that time period very often. It is great though to see movies like Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off be so, be so far beyond what the movies that were made for teenagers in the 1960s, like the Gidget movies and stuff like that. Right. To see the, to see teenagers to see movies about teenagers that had actual real emotions in them, yeah, and real people who you could who you could who you could, who you could recognize as people that you went to school with or whatever. Talk to teenagers without talking down to them. Yeah, exactly. I kind of wish that the Academy was less inclined to pick a movie that they like and then nominate it in every category. Yeah. You know, I think that would be served better if they diversified a little bit more. And I understand that, like, each branch 
has their vote, and so each branch falls in love with certain movies, and it's it's sort of like in their own weird way they're voting in Best Picture when they vote in their well they vote for Best Picture too, so it doesn't really make sense, but mm-hmm. it just seems weird to me as every Oscar year you look down the categories, and it's always the same movies over and over again that get nominations the same type of movies no and the same movie like oh i see what you mean yeah the, like the uh the the movies that like sweep with the yeah most or they're of nominations. Multi- yeah. multiple mm-hmm. nominated but they miss yeah. out mm-hmm. on maybe honoring a movie from that year that isn't going to get because they don't do it as a whole it's done branch by branch if they did it as a whole right. body they might it might be more diversified i never well, like they sweep would if they would, if the people who were voting in that category would be, really be voting on that category rather than what their favorite movie happened to be. Right. Which is how the BAFTA does it now. The BAFTA has all of their members nominate, I think, and then, or no, maybe it's the opposite. No, ne- they used to have all their members nominate. Now they have each branch nominate. They do it the way the Oscars do it. Because mm. everybody wants to be like the Academy, believe it or not. And everybody wants to be on the side of the of the big winner. You don't want to have you, if you're if you're if you're uh, in a branch of the academy, you want your contribution to be the for the best picture, right? right? See what I mean? You don't want you don't want to pick some little obscure movie to be your winner for your branch that nobody is going to see. You want your branch to have contributed to be the best part of the best picture thing. I right. think maybe, no, but yeah. I don't like that. I never like when a movie sweeps. I really much prefer when 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 they share the wealth and no movie wins more than three or four awards. Yeah, I agree. That's usually a better thought out. That means that the the choices are much stronger mm-hmm. when it's not one that wins everything. Um, they're a frustrating group to study and spend any time with. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> say that. You know, it's it's so disappointing to study the Oscars because they're only meaningful in terms of analyzing the industry and what the industry thinks. You can't even say that they're, you know, representative of cultural impact anymore nowadays. But back mm. then in the 80s, we're still looking at, we're still seeing some cultural impact. Cultural it's, impact mattered still. And it was really nice to see in the mid-80s. I'm surprised because I didn't remember, I don't remember um, looking back on it, the, the 80s being like that. But there so many strong roles for women still. They yeah. were, they're percolating up throughout the, throughout the, the every year in the 80s. Yep. And Aliens, such a great movie for, it was like the first female action hero, really. Yeah, and you still can really count them on one hand. The, mm. I mean, it's one of the things I, I keep talking about Game of Thrones, but it's one of the things I really love about it is that the real power in that show are the women. You mm-hmm. know, they're not decoration. They're not, you know, just there to support and prop up the man as so many films are now. They're not fantasies for 13 year old boys. I mean, these are powerful women who are calling the shots. One of them is probably going to be king. I mean, she's a woman, so she'll be mm-hmm. queen, I guess, but mm-hmm. she's probably going to conquer all the five kingdoms. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you guys watch it or not, but I read the books and then I started watching the show and I kind of tapped out partway into the second season because there were no surprises. Everything was already known and that took away a lot of the fun for me. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, I guess but I, I do that. enjoy the books. And the books probably are, I mean, the books are massive, so they're so, probably so much more dense and more complex and more detailed and everything than the, the show could ever possibly be. Yeah, I don't know. But so I you did. so you see things that you wish were in the were in the series that that you know that you left from the books that never make it on to the screen. Well, the show's pretty goddamn dense and complex as it is. Yeah, it is. It is. You, don't, to... you don't feel like anything's missing necessarily. Or I didn't. It just it, there there just were there was no 
a lot of the show to, seems to be tuning in to see what's going to happen to these people next because you never know because the show was famous for killing off <laughs> important characters so you just don't yeah. know but uh-huh. when you already know it kind of oh my temp- god temper some of the fun it's so like you know satisfying to watch because you're seeing in that show and in a lot of television what we're seeing what we saw back here in the 80s and and all the decades prior which was you know real women characters i'm not just saying women like all the characters are interesting in in game Mm -hmm. of thrones all of them you know the bad Mm -hmm. ones the the you know the good ones all of them but the women are so powerful you have you know a teenage girl who's dressed up as a boy who's you know getting revenge for her dead father and, and the whole story revolves around her has nothing to do with her sexuality at all and then you've got you know Khaleesi who's like you know the total bad, major badass is like freeing slaves and conquering kingdoms you know and mm-hmm. yes she's sexual but it's completely owned she's not anybody's plaything, you know um, it's just great you know women subverting powerful men and um, calling the shots it is fantastic, really. It, uh, I have, I am pledging my total devotion to Game of Thrones. Pretty interesting. I don't, I'm not familiar with the people who produce or write the the uh, television version of the Game of Thrones, but I'm sure there must be a lot of women involved on, on the production end too, in order to have such strong presence. I thought in front so. Of the camera. I thought so. And in some of the credits, they show like some of the episodes have female DPs and female mm-hmm. editors, and um, one I think a couple of them have a female director, but for the most part, they're they're still you know directed and written by men. I think that's going back to the 1986, if we can, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. I, I think that's one of the strengths of Aliens, too, is that James Cameron, for all of the complaints that, that people have about him, and I, I think Aliens is the strongest movie, and he's always surrounded himself by really strong women collaborators. He collaborate. I think uh, Gail Ann Hurd was his producer on Aliens, and um, he had a lot of resistance to that because see, they filmed it in the U.K. Let me see if I can find that quote from her real quick. It's amazing that this type of attitude was still... Existent in 1986. Here well, yeah, you had. Oh, yeah, she ahead. shows up at the at the studio in 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 the UK as producer, and everyone is aware of the fact that she's his that she's married to James Cameron, right? And so she says it was very upfront their discomfort with women. People would come in and sit down, and they would say, "Okay, so who's really producing this film?" And yeah. I would say to them, "I'm really producing it. It's me." And they would say, no, 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 you're just the director's, you're the director's wife. It's lovely to meet you, but who will I be reporting to? And, she, and I would say, actually, to me. Wow. And, and then she said one of the people on the crew said, well, I'll just tell you the truth. I'll be completely upfront with you. I will not take orders from a woman. And she said she shot right back at him. Well, then you clearly won't be working on this film. Oh, my God. See, that's like dialogue from Game of Thrones. Yeah. But, um, exactly. yeah. you know, you had directors then who, who were um, – who – you know, kind of made their careers on films about women, like Woody Allen, um, the Ivory Merchant Ivory guys, uh, Jim Cameron. You know, people who really felt like it was worth investing in female characters and stories about women, and and they were mm-hmm. rewarded by high ticket sales by box office. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you don't have those directors. Most of them lean on males, and that's how they get movies made because they make money, and studios won't 
accept anything, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when Cameron, you know, uh, they had trouble talking Sigourney Weaver into, into coming back to play Ripley again because she thought they was just, it was just a cash grab. And she, she, she scorned it a little bit because she thought she had moved on. You know, she had made some great movies like A Year of Living Dangerously and some other important films. And I think she had become an important actress since her um, debut in Alien. And so they, he had, Cameron had trouble talking her into it. And he finally convinced her by letting her, her, by letting her be involved in the script process. She made notes on every single line and every bit of action that she had um, about whether or not Ripley, as a woman, would really be doing or saying those things. So she sort of was like his co-collaborator too. She really had a lot of input into the into how the character would be portrayed and be developed. Also, she only made she her salary for Alien was thirty three thousand dollars. That's how much she got paid for Alien, and oh she God. upped her her asking price to a million dollars for Aliens, which was unheard of at the time for a woman, and she got it. They gave it to her. For a woman headlining an action film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So I, I think that aliens cannot be underestimated, really, as, as the importance of it is. To me, I, I, think it's, I think it absolutely stands shoulder to shoulder with really Scott's original. They're, they're, they're equal in, in value to me and importance. They're fantastic, both of them. position. I uh, can't lock in. Talk to me, Hudson. Uh, multiple signals. They're closing. Go to infrared, people. Look sharp. What's happening, Apon? Can't see anything in here. Pull your team out, Gorman. I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. Where, man? I don't see shit. He's right. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Tracker's off scale, man. They're all around us, man. Jesus. Maybe they don't show up on infrared at all. What is going on? Asking Crow down. Dietrich. Crow. Dietrich Frost off the board. Sound off. Frost. Frost. Where's Basky? Where's Basky? Let's rock. Who's 
firing. God damn it! Yeah. I ordered a whole fire. They're coming out of the goddamn wall. The fuck! Hey, Paul. I want you to lay down a suppressing fire with the. That's good. Great. Hold your fire. God damn it! Incinerators and fall back by squads. Say again, all after incinerators. I said I want you to lay down a suppressing fire with the incinerators and fall back by squads. Talk to me. Talk to me. Get them out of there. Do it now. Shut up. Vasquez? Hicks, Fall back. Take him fall back. Cut off! Do something! I like uh, Alien a little bit better because mm. Aliens has the kind of cornball Cameron dialogue thing happening in it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the definitely. One, it's the one time in his career, though, where it actually works. It I don't works. like it in any of his other movies. Well, a little bit in The Abyss, but um, um, Titanic and Avatar, to me, just are tone deaf. But it, mm-hmm. it, that, that corny co- comic bookiness works for aliens to me because for one thing i think in aliens i think you've got those military gung-ho characters and i believe that a lot of them probably really did probably uh, marines probably really do kind of talk like that i I have a feeling that they do play those those macho games with each other and it seemed like like i it seemed to fit for me i I don't it doesn't bother me and the fact that they all get their i love it i just by the end of the film makes it more mm, palatable to me i put (laughs) alien higher than it only because to me alien was was groundbreaking then and is mm-hmm. remains groundbreaking in, in that they they don't start the action till like an hour in or something like that and then even then it's only hinted at he oh, gets by right. on suspense and um, fear oh. without having to be like graphic and and you know full of action Cameron what he does is beautiful in his own way you know but mm-hmm. to me it's just there's no like to me alien is a masterpiece oh and absolutely I, I, I it's love, a totally different styles like you said yeah. uh, it's the suspense and the haunted house in space aspect of alien is what really grabs you what what cameron did in aliens in the first 10 minutes he shows you ripley in her underwear he shows you her dreaming about the um the um the uh, alien coming out of her chest he he hits all of the all of the all of the 
hot button um, ex, uh, climaxes in the first ten minutes of Aliens and gets that out of the way completely, like yeah. to remind you what the first movie did. Which and is it's totally it's different. great, but it's a hundred percent Jim Cameron, hundred oh, yeah. percent his mm-hmm. style. Yeah. It's it's almost the exact opposite of what Alien is, which mm-hmm. Alien hints at and. It, it, it never really shows, in, in Aliens shows everything, every, you know. He also mm-hmm. dispensed with the acid for blood. I mean, you see it once, but then he's, like, blowing apart all these monsters all the time, and you'd think that That's that right. acid would totally <laughs> You'd think the whole place would be eaten up, right? Everything would just yeah. be dissolving, but it doesn't happen. I had never thought of that. Wow. But I'm not trying to dis... I mean, I, I love Aliens, too. I love it. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's just... The thing, one is, thing is, about- I think they're, they're two completely different genres. One's a horror movie, and the other one is an action movie. Right. And I think they're both... <laughs> The pinnacle of both of those genres. You right. can prefer one over the other, but each one does what that genre does better than any other movie of its kind. Yeah. Well, even the posters in the trailer for Aliens said that right up front in the tagline. It said, "This time it's war." Right. This time right. it's war. So they're, they're letting you know right up front: we're not going to be running away from the aliens anymore. We're going to be retaliating against them. And it's great because the alien is fe- also female, so it's female yeah. against. You know, you know what I never realized? I never thought of this, but I don't think in the entire in the entire span of the first movie that we ever knew that Ripley's first name was Ellen. But it just occurred to me watching rewatching Aliens the other night how similar Ellen and Alien sound. Sound yeah. with each other. They're both mothers. They both have the mother instinct, and they're both fighting over the little girl. It's like Kramer versus Kramer, only it's Ellen versus Alien. And they took it. They took it, and, and kind of on all the Alien sequels, they, you know, they indulged more in that kind of connected relationship that they had. That they, mm-hmm. you know, that he starts, that Cameron starts, because it's certainly not really present in Alien. Alien, the the monster in the first one is more masculine, more masculine. Mm -hmm. Like when he puts his tail up between the legs of that woman, Mm -hmm. it's a more masculine menace. Whereas in Aliens, it's female, and it's it's identified with Ripley, and and all the sequels they kind of play off of that. It's almost like Cameron took the story and changed it. It's still a great story. It's, they're just different, totally different movies. I also love Terminator and Terminator 2 from Jim Cameron. Oh, yeah. Those I think Terminator 2 especially is probably right up there with Aliens for me as being the, the, the two best uh, Cameron films. Oh, for sure. Really, I, really... I would elevate Terminator 1 over above it because, to me, the sequel was the same thing on, on a bigger budget. Oh. And it, it, it injected a lot of humor that was not welcome to me. At all, I thought the first one took itself seriously, and it, it was more successful because of it. Well, like with both Aliens and um, Terminator Two, he has those Cameron lines, like I'll, "like I'll be back" is from the first one, but like in, in Aliens, it's "get away from her, you bitch," you know. And mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. loves those and everything, but it's the kind of thing that would never be in the Ridley Scott version, you know. Right? No, absolutely. What so. I do like about Cameron, though, is he when he does a remake or he does his own riff on something, he does it in interesting ways. I like the fact that he had another. Another artificial human in Aliens, but a totally different personality. Instead of being an adversary who's the evil guy, he turns out to be—he turned out to be uh, Ripley's best, gay best friend or something, kind of like you know. <laughs> And he is gay. I always identified with him. I always, always read him from the very first time I saw that movie as being gay. I, uh, what's his name? The character um, Bishop, Bishop the Android in, in yeah. Aliens. I always read him as being the gay character. And, that's and the other android in, in the alien might be gay too. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point. He's just the bitchy queen type of a, of a gay person. I like the I like the second 
version better because he turns out to be the like I said the gay best friend. And he's so gay that when he stabs his finger accidentally, he he drips cum out of his fingers like that white <laughs> ooze. Now that he's so gay that instead of having blood in his veins, he's got cum in his veins. Uh, well, that that um that uh the guy in the first one is all gross, milky. Blood mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, Ian it. Holmes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely right. They're, they're just full of the white seminal fluid. <laughs> <laughs> there was another. Uh, big... It's a good thing we have that explicit sign on our. <laughs> <laughs> we all three of us curse like sailors, especially me. So and I'm Ryan. worried that I'm the only one who I'm, that, I do, I, that I do it worse than anyone. No, you don't. You don't. I'm the f- most foul-mouthed of the three of us. I think I tone my usual f- mode of speaking way down. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. For the podcast, you mean? Yeah. Uh, um, there was another big budget, big studio genre picture that year called The Fly from David Cronenberg, which I think was his biggest success to that point mm-hmm. and probably really put him on the map for a lot of people who hadn't seen any of his earlier smaller pictures. But that one, uh, it, it wound up with a best makeup win for the Oscars. Mm. And I think... Um, it's been probably a couple of years since I've rewatched it, but that one depends on a really strong female character too. She could easily, Gina Davis could easily just have been the damsel in distress, but the movie derives more than half of its power from the relationship between the couple, not one over the other, but the two of them together, and, and actually the the sadness of of the way it falls apart because of because of his his actions but it's it's totally dependent upon her and if you remove if you make her a weaker character or de-emphasize her in any way it's not nearly as good of a movie well Cronenberg has always paid a lot of respect to his female characters and I don't know if you mentioned it, it was a Cronenberg film or not but but he, and it's like it's no he's no hack directing the fly you know this is, no, this is exactly. a guy who had really serious that's... intentions when he he, he had deeper things on you know, on his mind besides just making a horror film you talk sometimes about the way that, that the things that are going on in the in the world affect the way that people perceive movies. Two things that, that happened that were significant in 1986, uh, earlier in the year, the Challenger space shuttle blew up in front of everybody's eyes on television. And then a little bit later in the year, Chernobyl had its meltdown. And so I think people had a, a, a kind of, were beginning to see that technology wasn't going to save the planet that it was actually kind of a scary thing you know and i think that that's reflected in a lot of the movies like aliens and the fly that technology and science are uh, uh, the science fiction can be pretty dark and scary well that that totally plays into cronenberg's wheelhouse mm-hmm. that's why the fly i think is so great because it takes all the themes that he'd been dealing with up to that point with much lower budgets and much smaller audiences um and he's finally given a chance to give them full voice and and he, he takes uh what people regard fondly i think as a as the, the 50s version but this one i don't know i it, i can't it, this one trumps it to me by a long shot Mm-hmm, absolutely. The, the original fly. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm save your cards and letters if you disagree with me. I don't want to. Have a <laughs> it's, isn't, it's great though that we're finding so many movies from the '80s that that are that we can find fun things to talk about and, and that we're really fond of. That we're, there are a lot of great films every year that we never run out of uh, quality films. There are just fewer of them per year. And well, and it's easy to look at the big attention-getting ones and mm-hmm. assume that the whole year sucked. But when you start peeling back the layers a little bit, you find that 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 actually there's real quality there. And I, I mentioned before about the whole 
the the independent cinema sort of keeping up the quality and i you hear a lot of complaining today about movies and you hear the the death now being rung by soderbergh and even by spielberg but i kind of have this feeling that the human you know need to be creative is going to win out you know the the great movies are still going to be made they might not be winning oscars they might not be making 300 million dollars at the box office but they're still there and if you mm-hmm. care and you want to dig a little deeper you can find them I think the last two years, last two or three years, that it's easy to find 10 or 15 or even 20 really great movies, but they're just not always the five or 10 that percolate up to the top of the Oscars that we then end up being the major where the conversation revolves around. But there are so many great movies every year, almost as many, I would say, as were made in, in, in the 70s. And when you, when, you can, when you can find 15 or 20 movies to make a 20 best film list of the year, I think that's pretty, pretty great. Yeah, I don't have a lot of patience for the people who say, oh, this wasn't a very good year for movies. They're just not seeing enough. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, people always say that every year. But um, the uh, the interesting thing is that the Oscars are not evolving. Mm, just, that's right. They're just not evolving to honor excellence in film anymore. They're stuck way back there, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of the movies that they pick are, are good, but the, but it, 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 it's a, it says a lot that there's a whole industry of movies made just to be in the Oscar race and that, you know, really ideally you want the Oscars to honor films that come out, you know, um, throughout the year that are great and excellent. As, as some of the movies they, they did honor last year, like, um, you know, the, a lot of their choices were great last year. It just so happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't complain when you had all those wonderful films being nominated last year. But... Um, can we talk briefly before we close out our podcast, since it seems to be a pretty boring year all in all, about Cheryl Boone Isaacs, the, uh, and, and we have, well, we could talk about Cheryl Boone Isaacs or we can talk about Ellen DeGeneres as host. What do you guys think about Ellen DeGeneres being chosen as the host for... Yeah, or you can juggle it around when you edit it, maybe, but it doesn't matter when we talk about it. I, Ellen was always one of my favorite hosts of the past 10 years. I always liked her. I thought she knocked it out of the park the year she hosted. I really enjoyed that year, not only because I thought she did a great job, but I enjoyed the Oscar broadcast overall because I liked who won that year. It was a really good year for the winners, too. Yeah. I don't get caught up in the who's hosting part of it, and I tend to... I tend to like everybody who's done it to one degree or another, some more than others. Um, I always favored Steve Martin. I never, I'm the only person I know who never liked Billy Crystal. <laughs> I know it's bizarre because everybody no. thinks he's fabulous, but he, he, Me too. he I'm the with Billy you. Crystal show. He, 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 and I didn't want to watch the Billy Crystal show. I wanted to watch the Oscar show. And uh, it always kind of got on my nerves. But the only, the only hosting gig that I haven't liked in the last 10 years that I can think of, and it wasn't even the Oscars, it was when uh, Ricky Gervais did the Golden Globes. And I generally like him and his sour British point of view, but it just was so at odds with with the Golden Globes to me that it, it, mm-hmm. it just it came across as being snide and obnoxious and not funny at all. Yeah, I'm with you. I like him too, but he, I don't I think that he's a good argue. host because I think he he does, he wants to be the star too in his own way. He wants to be, he wants to be the thing that everyone's talking about the day after. And he wants to make fun of it, which is fine. But if you're going to take the time to tune in and watch it, then obviously you don't want to make fun of it. So if and if you do want to make fun of it, then don't watch. Yeah, I have to disagree with both of you guys. Like I loved, I'm sorry to say, but I loved uh, Billy Crystal and I loved Ricky Gervais. 
I don't have a problem with, with what Ricky Gervais did only because I'm so used to his from watching extras. You know, you knew mm-hmm. he was going to go do that. I loved him. I loved extras. I loved The Office. And I think he's fantastic. I just, for me, he was, he was, he was not what I wanted when I tuned into that show. Right. That's the thing. That's what I was trying to get across when I, when I wrote about it is that an Oscar host isn't supposed to be, you know, John John Stewart, you know what I mean? It's, it's you don't tune in to sit there and have him blow your mind with his, you know, right. his wit and his. Uh, you, you're tuning in to watch a, an awards show, you know, and right. they're basically right. the lube that gets you from one award to the next. And they have to you have to be somebody that you're comfortable with. It's funny. I thought Tina Fey and Amy Poehler did a really good job at the Globes. Um, the Oscar hosts that, you know, I'm, I wasn't too fond of James Franco and Anne Hathaway. You know, they didn't, te- they weren't terrible to me, but I, they weren't my favorite hosts. And um, but Billy Crystal was funny, and and he was like part of the Oscars as I knew them growing up. I, I imagine other people would say that about Bob Hope or Johnny Carson. I was going to say I would yeah. say that about Carson, but the, he was such a comfortable fit for me like his jokes were just light enough you know and he was never going to be really offensive and he was entertaining and he had his little shticks that he did you know the song that he sang and the different clips and the funny things he would do yeah i mean he's a bit played out now i know but um but i don't know i just i have a fondness for him he feels like one of like an old uncle or something <laughs> you can see that I, I, to, I me, to me to me go ahead uh, to me, his style of humor is a little bit too vaudeville for me. I always, I think I, that I liked when I see clips of when he used to be on Saturday Night Live or, or other things he's done on screen. I like him better because he he's not he doesn't have a shtick that he does. But when he does his 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 routine, his his stand up kind of thing, it's a little bit too vaudevilly for me. Just it's just a personal tasting. And I but I, and I do think also he's just getting a little bit. Um, Long in the tooth, maybe. To, to yeah, nowadays he is. He, you know, but he was so about what the Oscars are about back in the day. I he also was right in their wheelhouse for sure. Yeah, yeah, right in their wheelhouse. He he was the kind of public face that I think they wanted to portray. They haven't really found anyone who matches that now. Like they don't. They don't seem to know which direction they want to go in. Half of them wants to go in, in where the Tony Awards are going, like you know, full on theater, you know, very insular kind of thing. And half of them want to be current and present and vital and interesting to to the MTV crowd, you know. Uh, and they can't guess, seem to find the balance. I guess the Hollywood equivalent to Neil Patrick Harris w- would be Hugh Jackman, right? The, every time that they every time that they uh, talk about Hugh Jackman being host, it's like they want to turn the Oscars into a Broadway thing. For me, and I don't really exactly need to that's see what that. I mean. I don't really need to see the stage extravaganzas, the right. set pieces like exactly. that. Exactly, I what agree. I in for. Same here. Totally, a hundred percent right with you there. That's what I'm thinking. Like that. I feel like they, they're, the producers kind of want to push it in that direction, and they, but they also don't because they they want to stay you know much more kind of current, and yet they can't seem to find the right. They, they did Seth MacFarlane, and that was a disaster. You know, even though I don't think it was particularly that big of a deal, only because the industry is far more sexist, homophobic, and racist than Seth MacFarlane could ever be. I understand why people were insulted, but I, I would ask them to look at the bigger picture, you know. Right. I'd already yeah. totally forgotten that he'd done it this year. That's how you know, I think the host be, usually means to me. Another name that comes up a lot, I think he would be really good. I hope he gets a chance sometime, Jimmy Fallon. I think that people. I think people who do, who are, who can do a talk show night after night after night or day after, or afternoon after afternoon. I think that those people have this have the right type of personality to host the Oscars yeah. because there's somebody that you're comfortable with who's who who doesn't who's not abrasive, but is still 
um, can can make you gasp sometimes by the things that they say. Yeah, he I seems personally to... can't stand him, so that oh. would be a bad fit. But I totally understand what you're saying. If it were like oh. him or Kimmel, I would rather kill myself than watch. Oh God, what Jimmy Kimmel, about no. A late night host having the right sort of shtick to be able to pull that off, I think is absolutely right. I mean, Letterman is famous for having totally bombed, but I mm. thought he was great. Same here. And, and like I said before, Carson to me is the perfect host because he's funny and he's gracious, but he's he's smart enough to know when to stay out of the way and not to try to turn it into the Carson show, which is what he did every night on his own show. He, When he had a good guest, he knew it and he let the guest shine. He would do what he had to do to help make the guest be as good as they possibly yeah. could be. And then mm. he stood out of the way. And that to me is what what a perfect host is. I agree. You can't be a rebel because of what's the point. It's stupid to go on the, like, Ricky Gervais of the Golden Globes. It's stupid to show up and then just be a rebel and hate the whole thing. That never works. You know, but you also have to be funny, really funny. And that's why I think Ellen DeGeneres is a good choice because to me, even though a lot of people on Twitter, to poor Ryan, was, like, in a horrible fight with a bunch of people on Twitter about this, they don't think she's funny. And I do. I think she can get up there and she could talk about grocery shopping and she'd be funny yeah. I don't think she's I think that maybe people on Twitter judge her by her tweets I looked at her Twitter timeline and her one liners don't always come up come off too well they're a little bit old-fashioned but when she's just being natural and casual and doing her casual sort of storytelling thing when she gets to do a little bit of her acting and her self-disparaging sort of thing she's fantastic she always makes me smile and sometimes makes me just really serious, honestly laugh out loud yeah but Even she doesn't come across is, i'm sorry go ahead no i just think she doesn't come across well on twitter so maybe that's why twitter doesn't like her she doesn't come across to the fanboy audience because yeah. that's just not who they are. And they they perceive her a certain way because she's got a daytime show. So she's, you know, I think she gets a bad rap for that. But I think even if any, any reasonable person, if you, her, her particular kind of humor might not be your side-splitting cup of tea, but it's certainly not annoying or offensive and she's a, a a pleasant person to be around which is a lot more than you can say about a lot of people who they might have host mm-hmm. right that's the thing is you're watching this huge long show all you really care about is who wins i mean that's what most people tune in for and to see the celebrities you know mm-hmm. the host is good for like a couple of funny jokes and that's that you know she's warm and friendly she'll be fine i mean yes ideally tina fey and amy poehler would have been great choices mm-hmm. But That's the way it is when you're when you're at a party. You, you want the host, yeah, a great hostess comes around and just makes sure everybody's doing all right. That you know right. you don't. You, do you need anything? Are you, everything okay? That was a little bit of a rough spot we had earlier. Let me try to smooth that over or whatever. You know, it's the same thing at a at a restaurant. You you that's what you want from your kind of like your waitress. You know, is this somebody who stops in who stops by the table occasionally to make sure everything is okay? Yeah, and it's otherwise non-existent and let yeah. you enjoy your mm-hmm. meal. Yeah. It just seems so misogynistic to me, the reaction, because it was she's in her 50s, you know, she's lesbian, out lesbian, very mm-hmm. active in the gay rights community, you know, came out on TV, has, has um, you know, married publicly, lives her life out loud and proud. Mm-hmm. And as a daytime talk show, you know, is, is a lesbian every single day on a daytime talk show talking about her wife. And, you know, I mean, that's incredible. That to is. Me is there in- are people that, 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 that gets under their skin who would never in a million years admit that it right. b- bothers them. But it really does. On you some know, it does because level, they don't think of her them. as sexy. Right. Yeah. They don't right. want to. She's fuck way her. sexier to me now than she was in her stand up comedy days when she had long hair and was trying to be the cute girl comedian. Mm hmm. 
but not you know, because n- nothing about nothing fetishy about her being a lesbian, but just her self confidence. Oh, I know. And but she is just the way she carries herself, and just everything about her is much more attractive to me now than than she ever was. And I, even though I know I have no shot at her, well, she's beautiful. She's and she has amazing eyes. And I just mm-hmm. I can't. She just you, her her eyes are incredible. I mean, she's a fantastic looking lady. I really love her a lot. Yeah, I'm and glad. I mean, you're right. You're right that that is an underlying a lot of the reaction to her because if you think of any woman that that the fanboy set would pick, they'd pick fuckable women Mm. that they consider fuckable. They would pick Tina Fey. Sarah Silverman, maybe. Or is she she not cool anymore? No, I think she's still cool. She's like the funny girl that everybody wants to fuck. Yeah, that's right. At one point. She's like the pretty comedian. Yeah. Sarah Silverman or, you know, everybody seems to want Tina Fey. I think Jane Lynch would have been a really good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always, every time we do this, pick a host. Ellen DeGeneres has always been right at the top of my list because I just thought she was a good host. And, and you know, there have only been two women that have ever hosted the Oscars by themselves, and that's Ellen and Whoopi. And Ellen has only done it once, and Whoopi's done it a bunch of times. But every other woman host that they've ever had, they've had to have a male co-star. Now that mm. is sexist. My friends. That's weird. Yeah. That's like, you're not a real producer. Who should I report to? <laughs> talking, about, talking about the rarity of women in, in, in positions of power at the Oscars, that we can segue into um, Cheryl um, Isaacs. Yeah. Cheryl Boone Isaacs, because there have only been three previous women um, Academy presidents in Academy history in 85 years, and one of them is Betty Davis, who's quit after two months because she, <laughs> didn't, she couldn't handle it. That's or she funny. didn't want to handle it. She didn't want to deal with it, probably. But then oh. the, only, the other one was from 1979 to 1983, Faye Kanan. Right, right. And, and so that those 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 two ladies are the only two people who have been Academy president in 85 That's incredible, years. dude. That's incredible. That blows my mind. And I was also miffed and defensive that they were criticizing the Ellen DeGeneres choice when that was the first dis- big decision that Cheryl Boone Isaacs made. Mm-hmm. And I felt it was disrespectful and insulting for people to go on and on about what a bad choice that was. And it doesn't bode well for her legacy mm-hmm. if people are going to, you know, uh, second guess her choices like that. Just try to do that to Khaleesi in Game of Thrones. You'll get set on fire by a dragon. <laughs> well, I, I feel really optimistic about the Academy after the after what happened this week for 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 the Oscar ceremony in in, in next March and for the Academy for the next two or three years as long as Cheryl Boone Isaacs is in is in charge. I, I feel have a real good feeling about the way that uh, things are going to go. I, I like seeing that they're taking you know, and I love it that Ava. DuVernay now is an Academy member. How cool is that? And Ben oh. Zeitlin, they're in the Academy. Mm-hmm. So they're bringing their fresh ideas about production and filmmaking, both of them, mm-hmm. to you know the Academy membership, which is really amazing. So who It'll knows? You know, maybe their change is really coming. And not to be mean, and I won't begin. I can't. I won't mention any names because we don't even know who the names of the most elderly people in the Academy are. But they're they're not going to be with us much longer. <laughs> the people, the people who are who are stuck in the mud and dragging the Academy down, they're going to they're going to lose the war of attrition. <laughs> and I, I haven't been paying attention, but I I can well imagine who the people who've been bitching about the choices are, and if they are who I think they are, then that just proves that the choices were good because those people are all pretty much universally idiots and they have no business <laughs> having a voice of any kind. 
Right. Exactly. I'm really proud of our of the readers at, at, at Awards Daily because they're almost unanimously in in favor of, of Ellen hosting. Yeah. They wouldn't dare show up if they weren't. But those are the kind of people <laughs> I could hang out with proudly. I know, and and um, yeah, Ryan got in a scuffle. I was surprised that there was so much pushback after that decision. I was really, really surprised that anybody would would really dare say something so mean as to call that a bad choice. She's a proven. She's already successful, you know, and she. Oh, she's 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 won twenty Emmys. I, I counted them up on IMDb yesterday. She's won twenty Emmys or shared with her her writers. Sometimes she shares those Emmys with her writers, but over since since two thousand four, she's won twenty Emmys. This girl has, and not only that, her she's the highest rated rated uh, TV show. And Dr. Phil is second, but she's the highest-rated daytime t- television personality. And her ratings, people say, if people, you know, that you need somebody like Seth MacFarlane to get the ratings the Academy wants. But in 2006, when Ellen hosted, she had 40 million viewers. Seth MacFarlane, seven years later, got 40 million view- viewers. Oh wow! You know? So they're, they're absolutely neck and neck as far as the as far as how many people tune in to watch them. Yeah, I think it has more to do with the movies than the host. Nobody, I don't know anybody that tunes in because of the host. Yeah. Who isn't going to tune in anyway? Right. Right. Well, maybe people want to tune in to see Seth MacFarlane. That's possible. But Ellen's going to bring with her her massive female audience. That's huge. I think so. Absolutely. What was the year when she, oh, the year she hosted was the year The Departed won, you know? How about poor John Stewart was the year that Crash won? Um. John Stewart. The only thing that he did, the one thing I was really happy that John Stewart did that year is when he brought the the songwriters for once back out on stage because they got cut off or some something happened and so he, he brought them back on stage and let them finish what they were going to say. Remember yeah. that? I bet the Academy didn't like that too much. That might be why they never invited him back. Yeah, they don't like anyone who who bucks the the the, the, the trend, the routine. Yeah. gets in the way of what they <laughs> or you know insults them like they did something wrong. That's so funny. Mm. Right. Um, they're scary, the Academy. Scary people. <laughs> Who's scarier, the Academy or the people that bitch about them? I think it's the people that bitch about them. Maybe. I, th- I think, I think that they're... Excluded, of course. Probably the scariest people in the Academy are the people whose names we don't even know. You know, the people who, who's, who have... We know I, no idea who they are. They're the Illuminati. That, I, I think that there are a lot of people in the Academy, maybe a, a, half of them, who I have deep abiding love and, and admiration and respect for, you know. But the other half, I think, are really probably pretty pretty greedy and backbiting type of, you know, Hollywood, that type of uh, cliche. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? And the thing about it is that if it were only just the um, academy, you know, it's it's the whole industry, really, that, that, that are in this, like, weird group think. I don't know how you fix that. The PGA... Mm-hmm. The PGA are totally a, you know, I think a black mark on the awards community now. I mean, maybe that's overly dramatic, but it just seems like, you know, the PGA is making the choices now for what wins Best Picture. I see what you mean, yeah. I think also maybe the, I think the, the reputation of the DGA and the PGA used to be a little different when they when they when they had fewer members. I don't know. I think maybe they've expanded so much that they're that it's diluted their taste somewhat. It doesn't help that the, that the larger voting bodies are all tapped into the same white noise of the Internet, too. That just makes it worse. Yeah. So you have the PGA, the DGA, the SAG, and then the Oscar, and they become so uniform 
that um, it's really taken a lot of the fun out and the specialness out of the Oscars. I just wish the Oscars would rebel. You know, they mm-hmm. never do, but that's what I wish they would do is just totally full on rebel. And not that's what I was hoping they would do last year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I and I think we're gonna see the same thing next year with the scheduling of the of the the announcements of the DGA and the PGA and the Oscar nominees. I believe we're gonna run into the same problem that we did this year when nobody has there's nobody to follow. They don't know who to follow and so it, it, there's just chaos. Oh, you mean because the dates are going to be all messed up again? I think so. I think that I, that I, I don't remember exactly, but I think the dates are going to be screwed up again in the same way, so that nobody's going to have any sort of guidance, and they're oh, all I just going to be kind don't. of groping around. I bet they fix that, and that the DGA yeah. will announce before the Academy mm-hmm. nominations. I'll bet you they're not going to get stuck in that position again. That was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It should have been embarrassing for. It should have meant that another film was destined to win the Oscar, but it didn't turn out that way. It ended up being everybody turned against the Academy. Mean old Academy. They snubbed Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Cute Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Poor Ben Affleck. Cute Ben Affleck with his pretty <laughs> wife and his three cute babies. <laughs> and we saw last year the same thing happened to Spielberg with Color Purple, and they did not feel that way at all. Mm-hmm. Nobody felt any any pity or sorry for Spielberg when he was the the, the director missing from the nominees on the morning that the Academy nominations were announced. Because he was already so powerful, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They just don't like that kind of power. They can't They can't tolerate it. You know, Ben Affleck was, you know, had a really hard time bra- even breaking into the Academy with the movies that he made, you know? Mm-hmm. That's not entirely for- true, though, because he already had an Oscar for frickin', uh what the hell was that Robin Williams movie? Oh yeah, I can't think of the name of it offhand either. He won. He won with Matt Damon. Good Will Hunting. Yeah. Exactly. So it's not like he was this outsider, underdog guy. Somehow that's the way the narrative got spun. But you know, he. I think one thing that one, made, one thing that sort of did make him the underdog is his his acting career. He made some really bad choices for their for for what with Daredevil and things like that. Yeah, and so that this there is sort of a comeback story for him there. You've been listening to episode 39 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode.